Thank you so much. Um, I just really uh, appreciate the choice of song this morning, um, Lamb of God, that happened to be a song um, as I drove down here this morning that I played at least four or five times in a row, um, just worshiping myself, um, worshiping the Lord myself, (laughs) worshiping him in my heart as I drove down here. (laughs) Yes, this is why I should write down everything I say and not just speak off the cuff. No, um... It was, so I really appreciate just getting one more opportunity this morning to, to worship the Lord and, and sing the Lamb, um, Lamb of God. It was quite a blessing. I am so excited to be with you again today to join in our study as we continue the Gospel of John. I have just personally, I've been blown away at how impactful this study has been in my own life as I've gotten to dig deeply and study these um, these first few chapters in depth, the glory of this gospel has gripped my heart. And I trust that you have also been blessed these last couple of weeks as you have begun the study of this gospel. But before we get started, let's just consider for a moment what we have learned so far. We've learned that Jesus, the very word of God, was in the beginning. He was in the beginning like Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. Colossians 1.16 says that all things have been created through him and for him. This word, this second person of the Trinity, became flesh and tabernacled among us. In the same way that God's glory filled the temple, and he dwelt among his people, Jesus, the Lord of glory, became flesh to dwell among us. God himself in a tabernacle of human flesh, the God-man Jesus Christ. As one pastor says, the pre-existent word became flesh, fully man, able to stand in as man's substitute, and fully God, able to withstand God's wrath against sin. The incarnate Son of God He bore man's nature so that he could bear man's curse. What glory. Have you already seen God's glory in these last few weeks as you've studied the book of John? Do you see it now? I hope you do because that is what the apostle John understood when he said in chapter 1 verse 14, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember the purpose of the gospel? This bears repeating every week because of how foundational and essential it is to our study. John says, this is in chapter 20, verse 31, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So just as John saw Christ's glory and he loved him for it, I trust and I have prayed for you that you will see these same truths that John saw so that you might behold the glory of the incarnate Son of God. Today, as we look at chapter 1, starting in verse 35 through the end of chapter 2, we are going to identify three ways in which Jesus manifested his glory. We're going to see three ways that Jesus is glorious so that our belief will be strengthened and that we will be compelled to worship our Lord. 
we will see Jesus's glory manifested, number one, through the superior ministry of the Son. This is in chapter 1, verse 35 through 51. Number two, the abundant provision of the bridegroom from John 2, 1 through 11. And number three, the divine authority of the Son of God, John 2, 13 through 17. Now, don't feel like you have to rush to write all this down right now. This outline is in your lesson, and I'm also going to repeat it as we go through the lecture today. So right now, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 35. In John 1, 35 through 51, we are going to see, number one, Jesus's glory manifested through the superior ministry of the Son. In verses 35 through 54, we're going to pick up the narrative as Jesus begins to call his disciples. It's not surprising that the first disciples that Jesus called were actually originally disciples of John the Baptist. It was John, after all, who was pointing to, who was identifying Jesus as the Messiah. We watched as five men, Andrew, Simon Peter, John the Apostle, Philip, and Nathaniel, encountered Jesus and are called by him to be his disciples. Word travels quickly, especially through men whose eyes have been opened to glory. In these verses, it looks like each of these disciples found Jesus, and they did. But it's important to understand this truth. These men eagerly sought Jesus, and yet it was Jesus who drew them. John 6, says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And isn't this how salvation works? God elects and draws men to himself. He creates new life in them and enables them to see his glory. When they see his glory, they respond in faith and seek him. And this was no different. We also, we can stop right now and rejoice in God's sovereignty. He chose you. He drew you to himself. He regenerated you and saved you, and he caused you to love him and to worship him. We love him because he first loved us. He sought us, and so we followed him. Unsurprisingly, the news that Jesus was the Messiah, it spread quickly between these men. Andrew, once he had found Jesus and been called by him, went and found his brother Simon. He announced in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and proclaimed, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Nathanael, amazed at Jesus's omniscience, exulted, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Can you imagine all that was behind those words? It's no wonder that they couldn't keep this news to themselves. Can you, ha- can you practically hear the excitement? Can you just imagine the anticipation? The Messiah, the hope of Israel, was walking and teaching and ministering among them. These disciples were full of messianic expectations. And it's worth in our time right now to stop for a moment and just consider What were they expecting? Consider the wealth of promises that these believing Jews had. They would have been able to meditate on, to feed their excitement and their anticipation as they waited for their Messiah. Remember some of the promises in scriptures concerning the Christ? He will be 
the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. The seed, singular, of Abraham, through whom the whole earth would be blessed. Shiloh from Genesis 49, who holds the scepter and receives the obedience of the peoples. A prophet like Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. The son of David from, Samuel 7, from 2 Samuel 7, true heir to the eternal Davidic throne. The son of God in Psalm 2, who will possess the nations as his heritage and who will crush his enemies. The Lord who sits at Yahweh's right hand in Psalm 110 with his enemies as his footstool. The son of man in Daniel 7, who has all dominion, glory, and a, ki- and a kingdom who will be served by all peoples and nations. Isaiah 9's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The servant of the Lord from Isaiah. The Lord, the messenger of his covenant, who will come suddenly to his temple to purify his people in Malachi 3. And many more, many more scriptures that we don't even have the time to reference here today. It's no wonder these men couldn't keep this news to themselves. It's no wonder that they grabbed their family and their friends and they brought them to Jesus. And sisters, isn't this how the gospel spreads even right now? Many of you here today, you're only here because someone brought you to Jesus this way. Through the testimony of somebody else, maybe it was a parent or your husband or perhaps another family member or friend or even maybe a coworker or a teacher. You've met this Jesus. Does your family and your friends and your coworkers know about this Savior? If you aren't sharing this news, has it really even changed you? Have you seen Jesus's glory? Meeting Messiah was glorious for these men. Being called and becoming his disciple was the greatest privilege. This alone left these men awestruck. But the real glory was just beginning. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 47. When Jesus displayed his divine knowledge to Nathanael in verses 47 through 49, Nathanael's response was amazement and worship. He acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and he believed in Jesus because of Jesus's power and because of Jesus's words. But Jesus's response to Nathanael's declaration is a little bit unexpected. Read it with me. This is verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, every word Jesus says is true and important. But when Jesus says truly, truly, It means it's of special importance. So let's listen up. Certainly, this divine demonstration of Jesus's omniscience is awe-inspiring, but even greater things are coming. 
The book of John is full of signs. According to John 21, 25, if every sign, if every miracle that Jesus did was written in detail, even the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. Greater things were coming. But greatest of all, according to verse 51, is that the disciples would see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. I asked it too when I read it the first time. So what does that mean? Perhaps this language sounds familiar from our study last year in the Pentateuch, for those of you ladies who were able to be with us. So turn with me now to Genesis 28, 12. I want you to see this. Genesis 28, 12. As we parachute into Genesis 28, God would now confirm his covenant with Jacob. But Jacob is in a tough spot because he's running from his brother Esau. Jacob had deceitfully acquired both Esau's birthright as the oldest son, as well as Isaac's blessing. But Jacob's deceitfulness had consequences. Here in Genesis 28, Jacob's brother wanted to kill him. As Jacob was running, when he arrived at Bethel, he fell asleep and Yahweh came to him in a dream to bless him and to confirm with Jacob the covenant that he had made with Abraham and Isaac. So let's start reading in verse 12. Genesis 28, 12. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In verse 12, Jacob saw a ladder in his dream. This ladder was connecting heaven and earth. And this ladder had the angels of God ascending and descending on it. This vision in Genesis 28 signifies that the connection between heaven and earth would be through Jacob, whose name later becomes Israel and all of his descendants. The ministry of God would be through his covenant with Israel. The nation of Israel was the link between heaven and earth through whom God would communicate and relate to mankind. It would be through Israel and through the law that people would have access to God. Romans 9, 4 tells us that to Israel belong the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises. Have you connected the dots yet? In Genesis 28, the ladder, the link between heaven and earth was on Jacob, also known as Israel. But in John 1:51, the ladder, the link between heaven and earth is the son of man. This is the greatest thing. No longer would the link between heaven and earth be through Israel. It would now be through Jesus, the son of man himself. Jesus, 
the mediator of the new covenant, the only one who knows the Father fully, the way, the truth, the life, the only access to God. This new ministry, this superior ministry of the Son of Man would be glorious. What joy, what great expectation. And here in John 1, it's only just beginning. Jesus makes himself glorious through his superior ministry, the superior ministry of the Son of Man. And now, number two in our outline, we will see Jesus's glory through the abundant provision of the bridegroom. This is in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So now look with me at John 2, where we're going to consider the first sign that Jesus does in his public ministry through which he manifests his glory. According to one pastor, a sign is a wonderful, miraculous work of God that has deeper significance than just the work itself. It points away from itself, beyond itself, to something else. Today, we're going to consider Jesus's first miracle so that we can see what aspect of Jesus's glory it will highlight and what it points towards. So let's first look at the setting in which this miracle takes place in verses 1 and 2. And we'll start reading there. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Three days after Jesus called Philip and Nathanael, he attends a wedding along with his mother and his disciples in a town around nine miles from his hometown of Nazareth. The small town of Cana likely had many social and family connections with Jesus's hometown in Nazareth, which makes, which makes it not very surprising that Jesus's family and his disciples had received an invitation to this wedding. The fact that Mary, Jesus's mother, even appears to have a position of responsibility in this wedding, as we see later in verse 3, shows that these were close personal connections to Jesus and his family. Weddings in biblical times were major social events, many times lasting days, even a full week, as the friends and the family of the bride and groom celebrated the joyous occasion. Contrary to what is common today, the groom was responsible for the expenses of the ceremony. Weddings were the in celebration of around a year-long betrothal period during which the groom would prepare a home for his bride and prepare for their life together. In verse 3, we become aware of a problem that arose, though, at this particular wedding. The wine ran out. Now, the magnitude of this embarrassment and the shame and the failure of this is hard for us to understand in in our culture today. But this was a really, really big deal. The wedding celebration was an opportunity for the groom to show his bride and all of their loved ones, their loved ones, his generosity and his competency to provide for his bride. A failure to provide for his guests would have been a heavy cloud of disappointment and failure over this brand new marriage and their life together. When the wine ran out, Jesus's mother came to him for help. This also shouldn't surprise us if we think about it. By this time, Joseph had already likely died. 
And Jesus, as the oldest son in his household, had certainly stepped up as the provider and the leader of his home. As a widowed mother, Jesus, Mary, I'm sorry, would have certainly learned to rely on Jesus. Surely, Jesus would have been full of wisdom and uncommon resourcefulness. He would have been without question a fantastic provider and one of exemplary character. He would have been full of compassion and mercy. So it's really no wonder that she asked him for help. You would too, right? I know I would. Jesus, though, responds to her in an unexpected way. In verse 4, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, I know this sounds a little bit shocking to our ears. But I assure you, when he addressed her as woman, this was not a rude thing to say. Woman was a common term, which would have been a little bit similar. There's some similarities to the way we would say ma'am. Woman was a respectful and a dignified and an appropriate way to address a woman with whom you do not have a personal relationship. It was respectful and distant. Now remember, Jesus had been gone from his mother and family for a couple months at this point. He had just been baptized by John. He had just been tempted in the wilderness and he had just called his disciples. And now as he and his mother reunited at this wedding, surrounded by their family and friends, Jesus needed to let her know that there was a change in their relationship. Now that Jesus had begun his earthly ministry, he would have complete freedom from the pressures of any human relationship. He was not under his parents' authority. He was not obligated to the desires of his family. He did not need any advice. He wouldn't follow anyone's agenda. He could not be manipulated. And he would only operate according to his father's will. Jesus and his mother would no longer relate to each other according to their earthly relationship as mother and son. She and all of his earthly relationships would come to him the same way. They would come to him the same way that any person comes to Jesus. And this was good news. This new relationship between Jesus and his mother was not a demotion. It was a promotion. Mary and Jesus would no longer relate as mother and son, but as disciple and Lord. And this is good news to us too. Our families and our earthly connection have no bearing on our relationship to Jesus. To some of you, this probably prompts a little sigh of relief. There is no family background that will make you untouchable, unlovable, or unsavable. No personal relationship will make Jesus embarrassed to know you and to welcome you into his family. But on the other hand, no family pedigree will make him more attentive to you. 
It doesn't matter if you come from a Christian family or if you come from generations of Christian parents and grandparents, if your parents and your grandparents were missionaries, were pastors, or if you literally walked off the street today and this is the first time that you have ever heard the Bible taught. We must all come to Jesus the same way. We all must come to him and him alone as Lord and Savior. And Jesus says that of all who come to him, he will turn none away. As Jesus informed Mary about their change in their relationship, he told his mother, my hour has not yet come. Now this phrase is often used in the gospel. And every time you see it, it's referring to the hour of Jesus's death. His time had not come yet, but these words clue us in just a little bit to what the significance of this sign might be. Because Mary trusted her son, she instructed the servants to obey anything Jesus told them to do. So he looked at the servants and he instructed them to fill six stone water pots with water. Now, These water pots were not the typical pottery used for drinking during this time. Rather, these stone pots were used for ceremonial purification, according to the law. They were used for washing guests and washing utensils. It would have been unthinkable to fill them with anything for human consumption. And yet, Jesus instructed them to fill them. Once the water pots were full, Jesus instructed the servants to draw some out and to take it to the master of the feast. Now, can you just imagine what these servants would have been thinking? How baffled they would have been? The wine ran out, and this man's solution was to fill up the kitchen sink and take a cup of the dishwater and hand it to the head waiter for a taste test. This was crazy. (laughs) It's a really confusing request. So look what happened in verse 9. When the, head waiter tasted, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew the water knew, the head water called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. Water? To wine? Dishwater to fine wine? Bath water to the best wine the head, the head waiter had ever tasted? And since this wine was made by the creator of the universe, I think it's safe to assume that this was the best and the sweetest and the freshest wine that has ever been made. And friends, this was not just a glass of good wine. This was gallons and gallons and gallons of good wine, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. This is about enough wine to fill up a hot tub. Google's helpful in that way. Enough wine to fill up a hot tub. Now, I admit, I do not know much about wine quality or prices. Actually, I know nothing, but I did do a quick search to help to understand a little bit about average wine prices. 
According to my research, an average bottle of red wine, this is with a 3.6 rating, it costs about $15 a bottle. An extraordinary bottle of wine with a 4.8 rating costs $528 per bottle. Now, I also, just for fun, I picked a very expensive wine, one that I cannot and will not try to pronounce up here, a very expensive wine that costs up to $96,000 a bottle. So I did some computations. <laughs> At those prices, 120 to 180 gallons of average wine would have cost somewhere between $10,000 and $14,000 at today's prices. An extraordinary wine, the one that I picked out, that was 4.8 rating, would have cost between $325,000 and $485,000. Now, the really expensive wine that I chose would have cost between $59 and $88,000 million dollars. Million dollars. This is a very, very extravagant wedding gift. Okay. This extravagant wedding gift was in small town. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Cana, no less. And interestingly, this miracle, this wedding gift was given. It was done where not, not everybody could see it only in front of the servants and the disciples. This extravagant abundance, this bountiful provision was given at the most crucial moment. This lavish gift arrived at the point of the bridegroom's greatest failure and shame. And remarkably, it was not Jesus who got the credit initially. It was the bridegroom though I am sure that news spread quickly afterwards. But initially, the bridegroom got the credit. Rather than Jesus being honored for this abundance of fine wine, the bridegroom received the honor. And ladies, this was more, though, than a spectacular display of Jesus's power and his deity, though it was that. And this is more than a revelation of his compassion and his blessing of marriage. And it was that also. This miracle, this sign pointed to something greater than the miracle itself. This miracle was a sign and we need to take some time to understand what it points towards. What does the sign signify? What does it signify? It's not a coincidence that when Jesus purposed to reveal his glory, He chose stone ceremonial jars to fill up with water to turn to wine. Those stone ceremonial jars, they represented all of the law and all of the effort of men to wash their uncleanness away. They represented man's effort to deal with sin. Day after day, week after week, year after year, the fastidious Jews would wash and wash, and wash, and yet it would never be enough. It would never wash away their uncleanness. A million washings could not provide what they needed most. True cleansing, the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, 
He provided wine. He filled those ceremonial jars with water and he turned that water into gallons and gallons of wine. In the Old Testament, especially in the passages promising the new covenant, like Jeremiah 31 and Isaiah 25 and others that we looked up in our lesson this week, wine represented the abundance of God's grace to his people. These passages foretold that God's grace would flow like wine when Messiah came. And the Messiah, the bridegroom was here, the abundant provider, the word, God himself in the flesh, and it was time to celebrate. John the Baptist understood this, according to John 3, 29, and he rejoiced greatly and his joy was made full because the bridegroom had arrived. The disciples understood this in Mark 2, 19 because they didn't fast and it baffled the religious leaders. But how can you fast and mourn in the presence of the bridegroom? That's a time for rejoicing, not mourning. This abundant, unbelievably generous gift of wine at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry pointed to the abundance of God's graciousness in Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus was the new wine. But wine did not just signify blessing and abundance in passages about the new covenant. In passages like Matthew 26 and 1 Corinthians 11, wine is symbolic of the blood of the new covenant. Remember, Jesus's hour had not yet come. But even from this first miracle, that day was always in Jesus's mind. The whole purpose of his appearing was to save his people. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, at a wedding feast, when the bridegroom failed and was helpless to provide for his guests, our Lord, the heavenly bridegroom, transformed the waters of purification and abundantly provided the best wine that has ever been made. Abundant grace abundant provision. And this manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so we've seen how Jesus manifested his glory in one, the superior ministry of the son of man. And number two, the abundant provision of the bridegroom. And third, we will see how Jesus manifests his glory in the divine authority of the son of God. Let's pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 12. All right. After leaving the wedding feast in Cana, Jesus spent time with his family for a few days and then headed to Jerusalem to observe the feast of the Passover. This timing is important because the cleansing of the temple was at the first Passover of Jesus's ministry. Now, ladies, Jesus cleansed the temple two times. Once here in John 2, and again at the end of his ministry in John 21 in Passion Week. These two accounts, they bookend Jesus's life and ministry with a zeal for God's glory and true worship and a condemnation of the apostate Jewish religious system of the time. Here in John 2, when Jesus arrived at the temple to worship, he was assaulted by the busy sights and sounds of a marketplace within the temple itself. Jesus was full of righteous indignation against the exploitive administration, and he hated the shallow and counterfeit worship of the people. He gathered up a bunch of ropes and created a whip out of them. 
Jesus was passionate for his father's glory, and the temple had become more like a strip mall than a sanctuary. It had become more like a house of business than a house of prayer. With nothing but a handmade whip, he drove out all of the merchants and the animals and all of the people who were perverting the worship of God by turning the temple into a place of business. And nobody could stop him. Now, this text doesn't come right out and say it, but make no mistake, this was an incredible miracle. Absolutely incredible. No one could stop him. No one could lay a hand on him. No one could redirect him or subdue him. The Lord had come to his temple and he was pronouncing judgment on an apostate religious system. When the disciples saw Jesus miraculously cleanse the temple, verse 17 tells us that they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house would consume me. Now the Jews did not take the worship of God seriously. But we do, don't we, ladies? We are passionate for God's glory. And we understand that God is the God of the universe and the God of his people. We understand that the holiness of God demands our full reverence and our undivided attention. We understand that God is worthy of all praise and we want to give him the praise that he is worthy of. And so we know that when we come to church, we come to behold the glory of the God of the universe, to love him and adore him and to be focused not on what we can get, but on what we can give to God in worship. But the Jewish leaders, they had no capacity for true worship. They had no capacity for true reverence. When the Jewish leaders saw what Jesus had done, they were indignant and they demanded that Jesus, show, that Jesus show a sign to prove his authority for clearing out the temple. Can you even imagine the audacity? After they had been helpless to stop him from dispersing their customers and wrecking their business, they demanded of him a sign to prove his authority. Look at verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now we know from this text, ladies, that the Jewish leaders did not understand Jesus's response. Even the disciples didn't understand at first until, at least not until the resurrection. But this text clues us into the significance of this account. And there are two things going on here, and I want to make sure you catch both of them. First, Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple. Yes, they would destroy this physical temple. This newly rebuilt temple in the entire religious system that it represented had been an empty shell for hundreds of years. God's glory had left his temple desolate back in Ezekiel 10. And now when the Lord of glory returned to his temple, the Jewish leaders hated him. Yes, they would eventually destroy this temple. Their apostasy, 
their corruption, their blasphemy, their hypocrisy would destroy it. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70, just a few decades after Jesus's death and resurrection. But the real emphasis of this statement of Jesus's statement is understood in verse 20. When we learn that he is, he was speaking not of the physical temple, but of the temple of his body, the sign that was coming, which would prove his divine authority would be that they would destroy him and he would raise himself from the dead. The resurrection would prove Jesus's divine authority. The Jews saw Jesus cleanse the temple and they demonstrated their unbelief by demanding a sign. However, when the disciples understood Jesus's words after the resurrection, they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The disciples saw Jesus's glory and they believed. They saw Jesus's signs and they worshiped him. And we've also seen Jesus's glory today. We've seen Jesus manifest his glory in his superior ministry as the son of man. We've seen him manifest his glory as the abundant, the all-providing bridegroom. And we've also seen his divine authority as the son of God. But my question now is what is your response? Do you believe? Have you seen his glory? Have you responded in worship? As we close today, consider verse 23 and 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning men, he, for he himself knew what was in man. The disciples saw Jesus's signs, which he had manifested and they believed in him. They loved him. They worshiped him and they followed him. The Jews saw Jesus's sign and they suspected he came from God, but they demanded more signs from him. The crowd saw Jesus's signs and many believed in him. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. Literally, this verse reads, he did not believe their belief. He did not believe their belief because he knew all men. And he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself, he knew what was in man. Jesus knows the difference between true belief and false belief. He knows the difference between asking and accusing. He knows the difference between a petition and a demand. He knows the difference between worship and empty religion. Jesus knows the difference between trust and self-reliance. And Jesus knows the difference between repentance and worldly sorrow. And he knows the difference between sincerity and hypocrisy. Jesus knows man and he can't be fooled. He knows me and he knows you. Jesus knows you. He knows those of you who have truly believed and you are his sheep. And Jesus knows those of you who are self-deceived and you are not his sheep. And Jesus also knows those of you who are seeking to deceive others into believing that you are his sheep. Right now, he knows your heart. Some of you here today, you're like the crowds. You've seen Jesus' signs this morning and you believe You believe that the events in this narrative are historically accurate. 
You love to surround yourself with Christians, but Jesus knows your heart and he does not believe your belief. He knows your heart is actually full of worry, pride, covetousness, selfishness, selfishness, disinterest, hypocrisy, and unbelief. And he knows where your trust really lies and where your affections really are, and nothing escapes Jesus's omniscient eye. Jesus can spot counterfeit belief through the most convincing veneer. And ladies, Jesus does not believe that kind of belief. And what is the result of that kind of counterfeit faith? The answer is eternal separation from a holy God. God will justly judge sinners. And if you don't have saving belief in Christ, he will justly judge you. But there's good news for you. Because friend, if this describes you today, you can repent of your unbelief and your hypocrisy and you can turn to God for forgiveness even right here today. You can behold Jesus in his glory so that you might love him for who he is and worship him. You can reject your self-reliance and you can put all your trust in the son of man, the gracious heavenly bridegroom, the divine son of God. But many of you here today, you're like the disciples. Perhaps what you need to hear is that because he knows you, he knows that you have faith, but it's weak. He knows those of you with tender consciences and struggling with doubt and weighed down with guilt. Turn to Jesus. He is the only link between heaven and earth. He provides abundantly for his children. His blood, his work on the cross has permanently dealt with your sin. Your biggest problem has already been dealt with. Look to Jesus, see his glory, and trust him. But there are others of you also who have a history with Jesus. Your belief is strong. You've walked with him for years, maybe even decades. You've seen his glory in your personal study. You've seen it in the sermons, in your Bible studies. And this is just one more opportunity to behold your God. Don't become lazy. Don't coast spiritually. Gaze intently at the glory of Christ in the gospel of John. Behold him and become like him. Love him and worship him. Let the word dwell in you richly. Renew your mind. Find strength for your faith and respond in worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truths in these chapters. Open our eyes to your glory. Strengthen our belief and purify our worship and give us boldness to share your excellencies with our unbelieving family and friends so that you will receive the honor that you're worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen.